Welcome to another instalment of the Mojo Innovators podcast. You're listening to its host, Mojo Senior Editor, Danny Eccleston. Today, we're contemplating a musician who could almost be described as the patron saint of Mojo magazine. An artist whose mercurial progress and Stygian depths have kept us wrapped since he burst onto the stage as a folk singing prodigy in the early 60s. The artist who many credit with a step change in the lyrical sophistication of pop and rock. We're talking about Bob Dylan. And helping us analyse the watersheds in this remarkable career, still going strong today, of course, are two journalists and writers with special ties to Mojo magazine. Former Mojo editor Matt Snow. Hello. And former Mojo deputy editor Andrew Mayle. Hello. And since this is the Mojo Innovators podcast, we're focusing on three moments when Dylan changed the landscape of music. Clearly not the only three, but we literally don't have all day or all week. So to start, we're going to be looking at the period around 1965 when Dylan controversially and combustibly went electric. Second, we'll leap forward a decade to his album Blood on the Tracks and the Rolling Thunder Review, an extraordinary revival of his creative health. And third, at the end of the 90s, the album Time Out of Mind, which many argue lay down a marker for Dylan's renewed vigour in the 21st century. But we start in 1965. Bob Dylan is the pin-up of the American folk revival, writing new songs with powerful contemporary spins on the folk tradition. But things are changing. In March, Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home album is released. Then, on July 20th, comes Like a Rolling Stone. On July the 25th, Dylan plays the Newport Folk Festival with an electric band. Cue Ferrari. Matt and Andrew, what's the context here? How much is Dylan going electric and how much is he going back? And why are the folkies so miffed? Well, this is a huge question because it's not just a watershed in Bob Dylan's career. It is a watershed in this thing we call pop and rock. Uh, Because what it is, it's a sort of a fusion in the white heat of conflict of almost a brand new market or audience. And that is, it is where uh, an audience of what you might call students is actually united in the end with, you know, a great deal of fuss and bother uh, with the audience of uh, teenagers who want to listen to music and dance and then quietly in their rooms actually listen to the records themselves. I don't suppose Dylan set out to achieve this um, really very momentous change in the history of the music we all love, but that certainly was the upshot. And I'm not sure it was even apparent at the time that this was happening, but very shortly in hindsight, it was very clear that that summer of 1965 is that something huge had changed, which uh, vastly expanded the the parameters of what popular music, both on 7-inch and also 12-inch at 33 RPM, could actually achieve and the ambitions it could actually cultivate. Uh, Was he trying to make those changes or that big cultural shift? I don't suppose he was. I think like an awful lot of Dylan's career, he's a great enthusiast. He was simply reacting to what turned him on that 
day, that moment, that month, what felt right. And what felt right was the Beatles and the animals. He loved that music, or rather he was certainly inspired and enthused by it. And it wasn't brand new to him, electric music. He loved Buddy Holly and the Crickets. He'd seen them. He was a rock and roll kid. He grew up on Elvis um, and records which transmogrified from, as you, you know, country rockabilly to electric rock and roll. This was in his DNA, as they say. And so bringing it all back, bringing it all back home, as per the title of the album, were reverting to the 17-year-old self he had been. But of course, the audience he was confronting with this music uh, were not going to uh, let the old Dylan of 1962, 3 and 4 go quite that easily. Yeah, it's it's a world in which kind of everything is divided up quite neatly before Dylan comes along, isn't it? And these audiences are going for something that feels secure and safe. And certainly that folk audience is looking for what they believe is a kind of lyrical honesty. And they believe that Dylan was offering that. And then suddenly you get, I suppose, kind of... Um, you know, all these kind of baffles and screens. You get the noise of the electric guitar in there, but also you get that sort of added to the lyrical obfuscation. And also, you know, that kind of acid verbiage. You get kind of, you know, hate is in music for the first time. You know, that kind of uh, disdain, maybe, is a better word, you know, that hadn't been there, certainly hadn't been in folk music. And that kind of, I mean, there's a quote from Joni Mitchell, I think, where she she latches onto that, um, you know, that phrase, you've got a lot of nerve, that nobody used language like that in, you know, the pop song before. Maybe kind of early rockabilly guys did, but not with such kind of venom. And she says kind of, you know, when I heard Bob Dylan singing that, you've got a lot of nerve, I thought, hallelujah, man, the American pop song has grown up and I think that's kind of what you know what Matt was saying that suddenly you have these kind of quote unquote grown up ideas coming into the world of pop and I, th- I think the folk people felt that they were in this kind of rather refined separate world and, and Dylan was bringing this kind of as what Pete Seeger would see it, as kind of pollution noise pollution into that world. Yes, I think that's true. Although, you know what, the folk audience who was so resistant is that they weren't really listening properly to what Dylan had been doing before. Yeah, good point. You know, his disdain, the idea of bringing anger or revenge, ne- yeah. negative feelings into pop songs was right there from Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Yeah. You know, you just wasted my precious time. Yeah. That was 1963. Yeah. This wasn't a straightforward romantic song But you know you've got the sound to match it. Exactly. You know. But when you had the sound of the electric band ramming as it were the disdain home it couldn't be ignored it couldn't be skated over the other great thing you've got to focus on if we're talking about Dylan as a pop artist is the fact that you have this single person on stage who looks like how the music sounds. Like, you know, sort of prior to that, if you look at kind of how the Beatles or Stones were presented, they're being presented like kind of as bands from an earlier age. And then kind of that sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of touring kind of, you know, besuited nice guys. And then suddenly you've got this guy in this kind of, you know, electric polka dot, beanpole with the, the bird's nest hair. He looks electric. He looks kind of like a, an exclamation point. He looks like a figure of disdain. So and I think that's kind of key. It's not just about the sound that you're getting. It's that you're getting this kind of guy who comes on stage at Newport and looks like a middle finger. You know. <laughs> oh, also, is the thing about Newport, as has been pointed out, he was by far not the first electric artist to yeah. play there. But if you were um, a blues artist, that is, yeah. you were a black 
skinned person mm. playing blues, that was perfectly all right. Yeah. If you were a white artist playing an electric guitar, a yeah. Fender, which was seen practically as being like the kind of the very symbol of uh, yeah. rampant commercial capitalism, consumer capitalism, it, you know, the very yeah. devil to an awful lot of these, you know, very handcrafted uh, folk audience people who were stuck is that for all the talk of freedom, they were only really talking about certain collective freedoms. Yeah. They were not interested in individual freedoms. And everybody yeah. kind of in their little compartmentalized place. Mm. And that's what Dylan does. It is like the, the, this kind of, this mesh is what he gives. The kind of, you know, both a mesh that kind of, uh, you know, obscures that clarity that folk wanted, but also a kind of, you know, a mesh of images and sounds and noises. So the meaning of Dylan going electric is significant, and, and you've both discussed that. What does it sound like that sounds different from other people's rock and roll? Because later on he talks about, he uses this phrase, the thin, wild, mercury sound, but there, there is something different about these musicians when they play with Dylan, the way they're put together. What does Dylan's rock and roll sound like? Really, it's almost a question which should have been put by the Tom Wilson or Bob Johnston, the producers. Um, there is something which Dylan talked about very much later, about the, the natural depth of field of 1950s records, which is to say natural reverb. It's about microphone placement mm. rather than mixing. Now, in 1965, is the recording in the CBS studios would probably be done with four-track, maybe just upgrading to eight-track at the time. But you are beginning to get quite a lot of this, the sound picture actually determined by the mix. Um, I think Dylan really had a sort of, um, not exactly an aversion to that, but he did have this sound in his head, which was not exactly nostalgist, but like a lot of, lot of the 1960s great pioneers, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, uh, others, you know, Keith Richards, is that they were really 50s kids. This was the ideal sound in their heads. You know, the sound of sun, the sound of chess. And I think the that point also sort of underlines the fact that it's it has an unfinished sound to it. It, found, it you know it sounds like a sound on the run. It doesn't it doesn't sound completely produced. It's going back to a rawer, rougher sound of the fifties. But it also feels like it's kind of heading somewhere as as well. That it's racing somewhere. It, it kind of it def it doesn't feel like a sound that is stuck in a single space. Yes, I think that's right. And this is, you know, it's Dylan's whole career, when you look back at it now, is effectively every record is a snapshot. Is that, you know, there is no such thing as the definitive version of any one song. And he, you know, as we all know, is he continues to evolve songs uh, in live performance to this day. You know, a song which we'll be talking about, you know, a little bit later on, um, Tangled Up in Blue, he says he didn't get it right for another 10 years. Yeah. I would take great exception to this. <laughs> <laughs> so Dylan takes this sound on the road um, and encounters some of the same issues he encountered when first unveiling it at Newport in 1965, which is he gets booed, not everywhere, but quite a few places, and he takes this band, The Hawks, with him, uh, who later are known as The Band, and they all experience this kind of crucible atmosphere. What does that do to Bob Dylan? How does that change him? Well, I think as the music begins this kind of 
unraveling, he starts to unravel. You know, the way in which he, you know, that idea, if we go back to the idea that he is his music, as you get this kind of fraying, as you get this kind of speeding quality that the music has, you also see it in Dylan himself. If you look at that sort of 66 footage, you see him fraying, you see him speeding, and you kind of realise that it's kind of this, almost this sense of kind of fleeing from something that he's created, you know, that he's already becoming... I mean, that's one of the interesting themes that I think that we'll be talking about today, this idea of Dylan becoming American myth, you know, and how he kind of recognises it and how he's kind of, you know, in flight from the fixed and the real and entering something much more kind of, kind of, you know, occluded and weird. And, you know, and drugs has a massive part to play in that because, you, you know, you, you see that in him, that the, the kind of boundaries of, of reality and of day and night start to kind of blur do you think this idea of uh, a martyrdom of Bob Dylan around this time, do you think this becomes important in the whole story of rock and roll um, subsequently? Like the, the idea that these stars ascend and they are in some way like become like San Sebastian and they're shot full of arrows and they have to descend. Yes, I think that's right. But I, you know, I'm not sure that's how Bob Dylan would have seen it at the time. You know, I think a lot of the speed which you talk about, amphetamines, weed and drink and so forth on tour, that is a simply part of the rigors of trying to actually regulate your energy levels yeah. and the stresses of being on tour, hotel rooms, away from home, surrounded by strangers, being everybody wanting something from you all the time. That is a texture of touring. Um, the idea about the downfall of the God brought, brought low, well, we saw it again the following year with John Lennon and the Beatles bigger than Jesus. And I think the two of them together, these sort of twin pole stars of 60s music whose, as it were, archetypes continue to reverberate today, did create this idea of the st of stardom brought low and to kind of bring it forward a little bit. And then you see the film performance made in 1968. Mm. It's almost ex got the same thing, the idea of a rock star becoming almost like the sacrificial beast. Mm. Okay, so now let's fast forward a decade to our next Dylan watershed. After Dylan's electric conversion and the crash that we discussed and the fame and the hostility that kind of surrounds it, he retreats and subsequently to emerge in a variety of guises and in a, with a variety of voices as a songwriter and as a singer even. And in January 1975, he, he releases the Blood on the Tracks album. And in the autumn, he follows it with a tour that he dubs the Rolling Thunder Review. Now, why do we regard Blood on the Tracks as a Dylan watershed, Andrew? I think because in that space of time since, I suppose we should say Blonde on Blonde and, and the motorcycle accident that he has and the release of Blood on the Tracks, you've had... The mystery has accumulated, you know, the idea that Dylan retreats and then kind of if we're talking about him as this kind of mythical God figure, he's, you know, he's weakened, you know, he kind of is trying to sort of get back to, he's trying on these different masks of, of performance and they're found wanting and people kind of begin to, to doubt him as an artist. But, and also the exhaustion that he's gone through post sort of 66, 67 is manifest in the records that he makes. They're kind of, you know, they're, they're thinner sounding records or they're less inspired sounding records. And I think we should probably maybe focus on 
Planet Waves, the album that comes beforehand, because that's important in terms of him getting back with the band and trying to feel re-energized and also going back out on tour. It's like a kind of an ineffectual rehearsal for what happens with Blood on the Tracks because it doesn't it doesn't work. I mean, I think Planet Waves is a great album, but it's an album caught between emotions. Is it an album that's in love with his wife, Sarah? Is it an album that's splitting up with him? And also when he goes out on tour, he's looking to get something back that he had in the 60s with them. And he finds this kind of, you know, corrupted landscape. It's, you know, it's an oversubscribed tour, the sort of promoters and money money people in the in the temple. You know, there's a, there's a real sense in which kind of he can no longer return to this world. So he goes away again and he comes back with Blood on the Tracks. And Blood on the Tracks is the, is the real kind of rediscovery of self. And I think it's important because initially you feel like Dylan is telling you stuff about himself that he'd never told you before. You know, that you're used to Dylan as being this hidden figure, this retreated figure, this mysterious figure. And suddenly he seems confessional and he seems kind of, you know, open about his relationship. But the idea of the mask, the mask is still there because he's not revealing anything at all. You know, it's kind of, again, he's speaking in rhymes. But I think suddenly you have a text that is something people can pour over and it's the first time they've had it in depth since maybe John Wesley Harding, but maybe going back to blonde on blonde it feels transparent doesn't it blood on the tracks that uh, and that's something that resonates with the listeners and still does yeah yes i think it's 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 it has got it is a much less produced record even yeah. than planet waves yeah um and so you you feel emotionally that much closer to his voice now of course you know almost immediately after uh, Blood on the Tracks was released, um, the various bootlegs of the other, you know, the rejected mixes, the rejected takes started mm. coming out, um, which have been a source of controversy amongst bobophiles ever since. And, you know, we now have, thanks to the bootleg series, you know, all of that presented and annotated. And so, you know, and so anybody can now pour over it. And I think it is, you know, it is very striking is that under, not exactly underproduced, but as it were, rather sort of nakedly produced, though Blood on the Tracks is, is that there are some performances which I feel get you even closer to the sense of Bob Dylan. On More Blood, More Tracks, which came out fairly recently, is that the very first song, and the New York take, or rather the New York version of Tangled Up in Blue, the Phil take Ramone, three. Yeah. yeah. I think that might be one of the greatest Bob Dylan recordings ever, but it was rejected. Yeah. It was rejected for um, a version he did with his brother up in, uh, in, um, in Minnesota, um, which was Bob Dylan going back behind the mask again, mm. the mask of the rather over-revved voice, yeah. the Dylan voice. Everybody lampoons the Dylan voice. Everybody can do it. And you realise actually Dylan is lampooning the Dylan mm. voice. He was doing it even back then. It was, if you like, his vocal mask. It was just a, it was just another layer of, if you like, obfuscation, but also self-defense. Mm. Any front person in a band will tell you, it's like being an actor. You, you need to disappear a bit behind the role in order to do this. You can't be just yourself. You have to be a version of yourself. I think the thing that you say about the bootlegs is really important as well, because if we're talking about kind of the real Dylan or, or, or the, the construction of the Dylan myth, the fact that, you know, from 
going back to maybe say, you know, Little White Wonder as well, the fact that you have this alternate narrative running alongside Dylan from that point is fascinating. And I think kind of it's how we view Dylan. We're kind of, we are ready to accept that we're not always seeing a true version, that there are other other versions that exist. And obviously it's something that he latches onto and, you know, with Biograph and he starts to release these kind of bootleg versions. But I think that is an interesting offshoot from this time that you start to get people kind of looking for other versions of Dylan. And But I think that, you know, that second band they use is with um, sort of Kevin Odegaard as well, you know, with the, the, the on guitar and everything. I mean, that's interesting because... That's another part of the, the Dylan kind of model, that idea of him standing in a room, a, a well-miked room, and just playing along and people being expected to keep up. Because that's what he rejects with the first version of Blood on the Tracks. It's, you know, it's arranged by Phil Ramone. Mm. And then he, he basically comes into what we now assume is the Dylan model, that he just plays and he, with weird sort of chord changes and people are expected to yeah. just keep up this and is, figure out. Because the yeah. band with Phil, Phil Ramone, the early band, they couldn't do that, the Deliverance mm. band. They couldn't do that. They were basically going, we can't keep up. We mm. can't work like this. I mean, you can't imagine someone saying that if they're drafted into play with Dylan now. It's like, you know, can you stop dicking about, Bob, I can't work like this. So that's key in Blood on the Tracks as well, that you get that shift into what we now assume is just Dylan's regular way of working. But it's actually something that he stepped away from with the Phil Ramone version and basically stuck with. Absolutely. If you go right back to the recording of Blonde on Blonde in 1966, it's all the musicians from Nashville talked about how, how they actually had to follow him. They had to look at his hands to see that he was about to make a chord change. Yeah. And that was the only cue he got. In some ways, the, the, the worst band leader in, in recorded history, <laughs> Bob Dylan. Yeah. He, you know, he he barely communicates with his musicians. Yeah. He has to have, not, I'm not saying top-notch people, but people who actually can, can get on an uncommunicative musician's wavelength very quickly, but also are very familiar with what you know, his musical vocabulary. You know, he has a stock of phrases and devices and pentatonic scales and things like that, like any other musician. He's got his comfort zone stuff, which is, as we all know, it's an amalgam of blues and country. Yeah. Now, if you are familiar with that kind of music, if this is in your blood, you know, as it should have been to the Deliverance guys, yeah. but you know, it certainly was to the guys in Nashville, yeah. um, and the uh, uh, certainly the band he's had now for the best part of the last thirty yeah, that's years. Yeah, that's really you know? important. And yeah. I, th- I think it's absolutely they are on his wavelength, and he doesn't have to do. He doesn't have to be the band leader. The band are an organic. They find their own shape. I think the other thing as well is I think that he trusts players like that to come up with ideas of their own. Whenever you read about the making of Dylan album, there'll be one track or two tracks where it's not working. And then some guy in trying to keep up with Dylan will go, well, what about if we try it in A, you know, or what about if we try this little change and, you know, and Dylan will keep that in. So there's, there's clearly also maybe there's an insecurity there as well. And he's looking for these good players, players who can keep up with him to give him new directions and new ideas. He won't credit them, of course, but Mm. he'll take it. We talked about the mask, and and the mask seems like an important idea that he takes into Rolling Thunder Review, which is the tour that happens in the autumn of 1975. And he, again, he's kind of trying to reinvent something. He's trying to reinvent the, the rock tour. What's his recent experience of the rock tour and why is he so keen to do it differently? 
Well, it goes back to what Andrew was saying is about, about the tour um, in 1974 with a band where they played very, very big arenas indeed. Um, and he found it a rather soulless experience. I think he was hoping to have, as it were, the same sort of fun, same kind of sense of musical engagement that he had with them back in 1965 and 6 and then Big Pink in 1967. But uh, it wasn't happening. They were all very proficient. And, you know, the live album that came out of that is excellent, but it's a bit kind of blary. It's a bit overdone. Now, I would also contend that so is Rolling Thunder, but in a completely different and much more interesting way. Um, I don't think you can underestimate how important it was. I see. Um, in 1973, John Lennon to go back to him, had his last weekend. I think Rolling Thunder was Bob Dylan's last weekend, yeah. except, he, you know, whereas John Lennon was just hanging out in clubs in LA and getting smashed, Bob Dylan was taking it out on the road. He was having an awful lot of fun with women, <laughs> with drugs, with drink, in plain sight and yeah. doing something creative and making a movie, oh, yeah. yes, whilst he was about it. I think it also ties in with that because it's around about the same time that Ronnie Lane sort of retreats to the country and moves away from the rec record label as well. There's this sense that kind of the record industry has got too big and you want to kind of want to remove yourself from it and, you know, go back to being troubadours of old, isn't it? That that kind of idea definitely runs through it as well. Oh, very much yeah. so, which actually wasn't a new idea no. in 1975. No. Is, is that people like Donovan and the Rolling yeah. Stones and in Small Faces and the Beatles were talking about this in 1967 and yeah. 8 and none of them ever really did it apart from Ronnie Lane yeah. much later yeah. and that made you know that practically bankrupted absolutely him. yeah but also I suppose it, it kind of it's an idea that comes from Big Pink as well and the move to Woodstock as well it's there as well isn't mm. it and the Rolling Thunder band themselves, enormous quantities of them, um, they all played with the idea of identity, dressing similarly, some of them wearing actual masks. The uh, white face makeup that um, Dylan and Joan Baez and others wore during it, the idea was to kind of, it was almost like camouflage, confusing the viewer. And in a weird way, he's continued to have that idea of Rolling Thunder Review because recently he made this documentary with Martin Scorsese about the Rolling Thunder Review, which in itself is uh, the adoption of a new mask. Uh, Andrew, you've seen yeah. that documentary, haven't you? Tell us a bit about it and what's unusual about it. Well, what's unusual about it is that it's not wholly a documentary, that there are fictional elements in it. There are fictional characters within it. There are invented, you know, directors. There are invented timelines. It's basically, it's, it, it's almost like Dylan recognising that he now exists as much in fantasy as in reality you know there's a the, the, i mean i suppose that maybe there was an intended fairy tale element to rolling thunder in the first place and now it kind of completely locates itself within fairy tale you know it, it basically says there is you know in the same way that um you know dylan's biography does not exist wholly in the real there are made up elements in it and i think it's kind of I think when we talk about the next stage as well it's him starting to see, you know, not starting to see himself, continuing to see himself as this kind of 
part fiction, part reality, and, and he can play around with that role. And as, as Matt was saying, it's something that he has always done. Oh, you, yes. Yeah. You go back to the liners of his very first album, and he's talking about Charlie Chaplin and Song and Dance Man. Yeah. Um, and from the very start, when he first came to New York, he wasn't just playing folk guitar in Greenwich Village. He was off to those art house cinemas, yeah. watching things like Les Enfants du Paradis and Shoot the Piano Player. He was he was very much into uh, French New Wave, and though uh, Marcel Kahn's Les Enfants du Parody predates all of that. With the white faces. A, it's about the theatre. Yeah. White faces and this sense of a theatrical troupe doing something in a completely uh, what you might call bizarre and hostile environment. That film was, was actually filmed in 1944 just as Paris was being liberated from the Nazis. Now, this is when you actually consider the idea of the theatricality running up against this great current in history... What a turn on. Yeah. You know, you can imagine how this would lodge itself in Dylan's imagination. And I think it's, if you like, is we talk about him as an archetype. I think he has these archetypal ideas in his head to which he keeps returning, you know, which is almost the idea that, you know, it, just the facts, ma'am, are kind of a bit dull. Let's have <laughs> some fun. Well, the other yeah. thing, and then the one other thing I'd like to say about the Rolling Thunder film is it's not just Dylan rewriting history, it's Scorsese. And one of the, anyone, you know who's seen that film one of the lovely things about it is that where he he plants that scene with um, Joni Mitchell right in the middle of it and it's just astonishing and there is almost that sense in which kind of you know there is one key woman who does not exist in the Rolling Thunder documentary and that's Sarah Dillon you know and the film begins with a clip from a uh, George Melies film in which a woman is in front of the screen and then the magician pulls his cloak and the woman disappears. You know, is Sarah Dillon. You know, but <laughs> the, one of the things that Scorsese does is he places women back in the narrative of what would have been a very macho male road trip. And I think that kind of placing that Joni Mitchell clip right in the centre of the documentary, and it became the clip that everybody talks about, you know, where, where Joni schools Dillon. And I think that's a part of re that's another way in which you know the film is rewriting history, but a really interesting way, a kind of rebalancing of kind of you know, and and something pointed about Dylan's relationship with women. Right. So now we jump into our Bob Dylan-powered uh, time machine and whiz forward over twenty years uh, for our last and most recent watershed to the nineteen ninety-seven album Time Out of Mind. So, what are the circumstances of this record? Time Out of Mind is, was seen at the time as a, as a fantastic return to form. Elvis Costello said when it came out, this may be the greatest Bob Dylan album of all time. Um, I think he might have said it actually in the pages of Mojo. What had happened in the intervening period is, is that Bob Dylan had gone through a number of changes and like a lot of of uh, great musicians is that when he hit his 40s in the early 80s, he began to lose uh, not, not exactly a sense of direction, but a sense of self-confidence. He would flit from record producer to record producer. He was keenly aware that the landscape of rock was changing very, very fast. You had MTV, suddenly it mattered how you looked. You had digital recording, which was the very antithesis of uh, everything that he wanted to hear. And uh, though the music he made in the 80s, it, there, are, there are nuggets there. There is an awful lot of slag as well. And many of the live performances that he gave in the 1980s are also tremendously various between inspired and downright diabolical, um, even to Dylan fans. Certainly, the only Dylan gig I've ever walked out of uh, was uh, 
Dylan being backed by Tom Petty and Heartbreak because both acts I really love, but it just didn't work. Anyway, um, is that his commercial stock began to fall. He was never going to be anything less than a legend, but uh, people's interest in his contemporary music was growing less and less. There was a little up blip in 1989 with a terrific record called Oh Mercy, Good bunch of songs, very interesting producer called Daniel Lanois, where it seemed that he'd actually found a producer, a guy who'd worked with U2 and Brian Eno, who had what you might call a retro nuevo, um, uh, a, a way of approaching sound using contemporary digital technology to make something actually sound like a sort of Twin Peaks version of the 1950s. But then in the early 90s is that, uh, you know, Dylan was having, you know, his children were growing up and he was drinking very heavily and he really wasn't in great health. You know, he was sort of hitting quite a midlife crisis in his 50s and he was also cutting himself from all his friends and the songs weren't coming. So, you know, it could have been what you might call the end of Dylan as a contemporary creative artist and the beginning of Dylan as simply doing victory laps of his greatest hits. Instead, what he did was he made one after the other albums of old country and blues records and old pep pop records that he liked. And they sold absolute niche, but they were a, a way of recharging his batteries because he was playing and singing songs again and he was refreshing his vocabulary and enthusiasm. And suddenly the new song started coming. I think that the brilliant thing about Time Out of Mind, and it kind of fits in with what Matt was saying, is he decides to present himself, probably younger than people imagined that he was at the time, as this old icon of music. I mean, in going back to those old kind of folk songs, it's almost like he starts writing songs that sound like they're, you know, they're taken from the Harry Smith folk archive. And he... He sounds like a man coming to, you know, taking stock of himself. He sounds like a man singing in the shadow of approaching death. And I know that sounds, you know, morbid, but I think that is one of the things that kind of covers this period from time out of mind till now. He sets himself as this kind of ancient Methuselah of rock who has insight, sort of, you know, grand poetic insight into the kind of mysteries of life. And he starts, you know, going back to what Matt was saying, he stops trying to keep up with kind of, you know, coming trends. And he basically says, this is my new identity. It's this kind of old man sort of telling old myths, singing child ballads. And also his voice has changed and his voice has this kind of new authenticity. And it sounds like the authenticity of the ages, you know, and, and kind of, you know, it's, it's it's a new morning, but with a U in there, you know. <laughs> it's kind of, and, 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 you know, and I think kind of maybe once we carry on, we should talk about it in the context of Love and Theft as well, because I think in a way, with Love and Theft, the album that comes after, what you then get after him establishing himself as this kind of almost Harry Smith figure, is you get a playfulness as well. You get this playing around with genres and this freedom to just kind of locate himself as an ancient figure, re, you know, kind of re-evaluating his past and music's past, which is what, you know, he's been doing for the past 20 years. And there's a dark humour to it as well, isn't yes. there, to his 
reflection on decline. I mean, there's that great line in Highlands, I'm on anything but a roll. Yeah. It, it feels like Highway 61 revisited sometimes, that album, because, of the, because there are some good gags in there uh, amidst what's basically a blues record. Yes, I, mean, I think that's absolutely correct. As you know, as, as Speaking as somebody who actually now is actually older than Bob Dylan was when he recorded Time Out of Mind, is that to have a certain gallows humour about getting old, about getting infirm, about no longer being the you know, dashing, upright young man you once were within living memories, it's pretty much the only way to live with that fact of life um, without getting tremendously depressed. Uh, you, <laughs> know, you simply have to off. Mm. But there is, I mean, there's something interesting, but there's something full circle in, in, in Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft as well, that he's singing songs, he's writing songs that sound like the songs the young Dylan would have been seeking out and covering. You know, there's a sense in which kind of he's become that figure that Dylan was revering in the early 60s. He's basically, you know, become, a, you know, the the old, venerable, kind of weird folksmith. You know, he he's kind of he, he's brought that element in. So he's kind of, it, it's not, you know, completely a move on. It's kind of because of that kind of revisiting those old country and folk songs, he's kind of saying, oh, you know, in a way, this is who I wanted to be all along, the old blues man, blind boy grunt. You know, this is, this is who I am now. Yes, and, if, you know, to look forward over the records he's made since then, there have been two sorts of threads of curatorship. The first one, obviously, as we were talking about earlier, is the bootleg series, where he's actually going back over his own career and representing his songs as, if you like, his, um, you know, this is his legacy, which is a, a legacy of some historical interests now. But the other thing is what he's doing is, as well as making records of original songs, where you mentioned love and theft is I listen to that and all the time I'm hearing these little licks by Fats Waller mm. you know records from the 1930s and 40s and then he makes records of songs which are originally cut in the 1930s and 40s and he makes a record of Christmas songs sung absolutely straight um, because actually you know what nobody really sings Christmas songs yeah. anymore not those Christmas songs so it's, a, it's, it's an act of love and it's an act of telling his audience actually this is who I am. You know, yeah. I'm not just this kind of wildfire creator. I'm a guy who actually loves these old songs and these old records. And so I'm singing them for my pleasure and I hope for yours. Yeah. Well, pleasure is a key word because that's the other thing as well. And you said it that there's so many of these songs in which he is clearly having fun. You know, that there is a playfulness there as well, which you embrace. What do we make of the fact that he is still touring and tours as much as he does. I mean, we talked about how much fun he, he has uh, making these records, singing these songs. You can literally go out and see him do it, like, any year, practically, maybe twice a year, even in the UK. I mean, nobody does that to the degree that he does. Well, I think there may be an element. He's now 78 years old. Perhaps he thinks, you know, he's, he's like a shark. If he stops, he dies. Mm. And this band he has, um, and I don't think there's been any changes of members since 2001. So this group's been on the road for that, that bunch of people for 18 years. That's a family. 
you know, that that is a support network yeah. of people. Um, his children are all grown up. He's now got grandchildren. And, of course, he's not on the road all the time. He does take time out. You know, he's very guarded about, you know, any significant others that may be in his life. So, you know, we, so we can only speculate, you know, whether there is a, you know, a Mrs. Dillon sitting at home, sort of knitting by the fireside, awaiting the return of the old chap from his, you know, tour of duty. <laughs> um, and he doesn't. He doesn't have to do anything except please himself anymore. It's oh. a. It is a form of active retirement. It's like old blokes playing golf. Yeah, but he also seems to be pursuing a model that is envied by um, many artists of his generation and subsequent generations. They, Bob Dylan is still an artist that they look up to. You know, look, Bob Dylan's still doing it. Yeah. You know, maybe that's what we should be doing. I think the other thing to say about the constant live touring is it goes back to what we were saying about the, the bootlegs and also about how Dylan records, that you know and Dylan knows that no one song will ever be the same, you know. So there is that sense of, like, each time you go out to see Dylan, you're seeing a new version of Dylan. You, will, you know, you will hear a song that you know in a, in a way that you've never heard it before. And that is a narrative that's, you know, that's basically run through this whole show, you know, of kind of Dylan constantly shifting, constantly changing, constantly wearing masks and, and, and dodging anything close to a true identity or, or, you know, a fixed notion of who he is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, uh, the Grateful Dead are really very important um, in this way because they've offered a sort of an art, a, a certain working model of how to evolve and grow your music through constant live performance. Um, he toured with them in the 1980s and he remained very good friends with the, uh, with the Grateful Dead and everybody knows of course the deadheads, the bootlegging the constant iteration of Grateful Dead music in the public domain officially or semi-officially and that's what Bob Dylan is now doing is that you can go onto YouTube and you can see clips of his music of pretty much every performance. Now Bob Dylan will know this is happening. Is he trying to stop it? No, he isn't. Because as far as he's concerned, this is all part of the artistic project. I think you've both wound up my show rather beautifully. I don't even need to, which is fantastic. Um, it's also all we have time for today, unfortunately. But huge thanks to Andrew Mail and Matt Snow for joining us today. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe. Next week, we'll be talking about a great little band called The Beatles in the company of Jim Irvin and Pat Gilbert. The producer of this show was Simon Barnard. I've been Danny Eccleston. Thanks for listening. <laughs>